And again, it comes back to the, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's no, because mediocrity to us sucks and average sucks. I never want to be average. I'm not an extremist in life, but I am someone that likes to do things that is different and it's something that is true authentically to myself. I'm not into the herd mentality. I don't believe in it. I don't believe it's the way to go. I do believe in going to do things that can put you to greatness and a lot of the time that makes you feel uncomfortable and it puts a fire under your ass. And when you have that fire under your ass, you go out and do crazy things. And crazy is not a bad word. It's really not. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. I am so fired up as we dive deep into hat numbers three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur, as we go at it with Jake Carls, the co-founder, rainmaker, chief rover officer, and all-around great dancer of Midday Squares. Alongside his sister, Leslie, and her husband, Nick, Jake is putting it all on the line and in full display as they navigate the roller coaster ride of disrupting the multi-billion dollar chocolate industry and documenting every move in their own reality show, marrying Shark Tank and the Kardashians and creating a baby of their own. Every minute of this episode is riveting, emotional, energetic, and just plain fun. So if you love chocolate, drama, and of course, want to strap yourself in on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for an hour, let's welcome Jake to The Seven Hats. The Seven Hats podcast is a show focused on entrepreneurs and their experiences of having ridden the entrepreneurial roller coaster. But today, dear friends, Seven Hatters, we are not talking about the past. Today, we are coming to you live from the front car of the entrepreneurial roller coaster with our guest, Jake Carls, a first-time entrepreneur in the middle of building a new iconic brand, Midday Squares. He's young, he's good-looking, he's ambitious, and at the moment, he and his team are not only crushing it, but they are also documenting the journey live on social media as they go. Welcome, Jake. Yuval, that intro was wild. The good looking, the this, that. Listen, I, I should just, I should hire you to promote me. Come on, that would, you'd get me all kinds of action. I, I have known to get guys action, not myself, but a lot of guys action. Yes, that is the case. So it's not every day that my entrepreneurial guest is also the star of a reality show. Can you share your backstory on how you and your family got started and somehow ended up starting in their own show about their adventures in business that rivals the Kardashians, by the way. I just want you to know that. I love that it rivals the Kardashians. So yeah, Yuval, it all started um, actually in like 2017, where my brother-in-law, Nick, and my sister, they were not married at the time. They were best friends. They were working very separate lives. Leslie was in the fashion industry. She had a fashion brand. Uh, she was a designer. And Nick is a software engineer, so he had a software company. 
And Nick loved chocolate. Like he absolutely freaked for chocolate. Every day at about 2, 3 p.m., he would eat the unhealthier chocolates like Kit Kats, O'Henry, um, for those Canadians out there, um, Arrows, all those bars. And he would get this tiredness after having it. And Leslie was a foodie at heart. She was always on the go for fashion, but she would always research and loved looking up food stuff. So she said to Nick one day, she's like, hey, I can make you a better for you chocolate snack that will satisfy your chocolate craving and not make you tired or have that afternoon crash that you always have. And he's like, okay, well, well, let's try it. So she ended up making it for fun and it, it is what the Midday Squares is today, but it was a version, the original version, a little higher in sugar, all this stuff, less commercial. And he brought it to his office and everyone freaked. Everyone was in love with this product, but because she was in fashion, she couldn't make this every day. This was, this was just a hobby of hers to try cooking and stuff like that, baking, et cetera. And long story short, fast forward a year, they ended up getting married and Leslie ended up closing her fashion business and Nick ended up selling out of his software company. And what he had is a two-year non-compete in software and he wanted to go work for Snapchat. He was doing an interview process for them and potentially going to work at that company. And Leslie was just looking for another opportunity to do. They didn't know that they had the business right in front of them. What they were doing was they were still eating this chocolate snack, but it was nothing to them. It was just, again, a hobby, a good snack. And he didn't have to eat his, old, his you know, junky chocolate anymore. And he was in the shower one day and he came out of the shower and he saw a report that was given to him from his uncle, who's head of MA of a big Canadian corporation that's, that's in the food space. And it showed that Real chocolate, Yuval, so anything above 55% cocoa mass or darker chocolate made with cocoa butter, not palm kernel oil, was on a tear at 44% year-over-year growth. And that vegan protein, so plant proteins, was at a, on another tear at 36% year-over-year. And it clicked in his head. He's like, holy shit, Leslie is making a baby of a real chocolate bar with plant-based ingredients that actually fills me up and satisfies my cravings. So it clicked his head. He's like, we're starting this. We're doing this. We're starting that business. And Leslie's like, are you crazy? Like, what do you mean? Long story short, fast forward about six to eight months after that, they reached out to me and they're like, hey, hey, Jake, you know, we want you to be our hype man, our community, our third partner, be our third co-founder and just build excitement for the brand. He's like, that's what you're really good at. We need you to come do that. And my first response was, hell no. I'm like, I love both of you. I love the product. It tastes delicious. But if you go to the grocery store or you go to any type of supermarket anywhere, there is thousands of chocolate bar and protein bar brands. I said, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? It's just almost impossible. They're like, just trust us. And I'm like, hell no, hell no. So I rejected them for about three months. And then I got broken up with for my ex-girlfriend at the time. And I was on this high horse and I was like on this low horse. I was like, oh my God, I have nothing to do with my life. I need to do something. So I was like, I'm just going to join. So I ended up joining and the first thing I said when I joined was, here's the plan. It was August, 2018. I said, guys, the way we separate ourselves from the 40,000 other SKUs on the shelf is if we make a reality television show about entrepreneurship. And here's why. I said, Shark Tank was on a tear. Kardashian's lifestyle, the drama was on a tear from you know the, the consumers watching it. I said, if we take that and make a baby, if we make a baby about authentically building a chocolate bar company, showing the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between, we'll formulate ourselves to be kind of like a boy-girl band, kind of like, you know, NSYNC, Spice Girls, and that creates relatability. And I said, once you have that relatability, the attention barrier is gone, and we will stand out on those grocery shelves instead of looking like a healthy chocolate bar that's delicious it won't just be that. It'll be, oh, I know Nick, Jake, and Les and the Midday Squares team. I love their products so much. 
So then it creates that emotional connection and then it's history from there. That's when we launched. And that was the strategy from, you know, a marketing standpoint. Who came up with the name and how did you come up with the name? So Nick was a huge fan of always saying what it is. So, you know, if you look at five hour energy, he, I, I, we don't drink the products, but they, they had, it, it states what it is. You know that you're getting the product, which is genius because you go to the gas station, you want energy. Oh yeah, of course I want five hours of energy. For us, the product was made for the afternoon, midday and it's square formatted. So it was simple for the consumer to understand what the product is by just looking at the logo or the name of the company. I love the product, by the way. I'm holding up the product, which I just had midday around 12 for a little snack. So Jake, you say if it's not fuck yeah, then it's straight up just no. That's some pretty wise advice for a young person to get. Uh, what's that about? And how did you come up to realize this important rule in business and life? So I always realized this rule, um, not directly. I didn't, I, it didn't come to life until the three of us came together and we decide this is a tripod, but we realized that if we're going to go into this battle, then we're going to die on the hill. So what that means is we're not going to slow down. We're not going to play defense. We're not going to play not to lose. We're always going to play to win and whatever happens will happen because being in the middle or being medio mediocre is the absolute worst. If you look at the, this data points, an outlier is the only chance of actual, real, real, huge success in quotations. I'm not just talking about financial. I'm talking about impact that you can make um, and, and magnitude, right? So I'd rather be on the lower outlier than in the middle. And, and then obviously the higher ones, what you're, you're gunning for. So in, in for Midday Squares and our core values, it's everything from product to the way we treat our customers to how we build our team to our company culture again, has to be, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's no. And things that happen with this is that it's not that we're striving for perfection because you can't get perfection. It's that we strive for greatness and greatness is a real thing. And you can get to excellence and greatness if you really put your mind to it. And something like a flavor launch, if it's not fuck yeah, then why would we launch it? We could lose the trust of the customer base solely on launching something that's okay or yeah, it's good enough. Those, those words and that vocabulary does not exist here. It's something that we do not stand for because at the end of the day, we're doing something so difficult, something so hard that we need that mindset to actually be able to build this rocket ship as it's, as it's already taking off. And I think that that's a big thing that we really embrace as a team. We're 65 of us here and every single person here, whether that's a production associate, that's someone in ops, that's someone in the sales team, they all have that mindset and that, that, that breeds excellence, not laziness. That passion that comes out of you is, is just, it's incredible. It really is. You know, one of your quotes is getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. That's when greatness comes. And I think that's kind of the, the other quote that, that fits really well with if it's not fuck yes, right? So where, expand on that quote and where'd you get it? So I always, I always found myself in like weird scenarios and I always had like a tingling feeling in my stomach. And every time I had that tingling feeling of like nerves or anxiety, let's call it, I always had something great come after it or I've learned something from it. So then I started to realize that, oh my God, every time I'm in those scenarios, something big happens and it could be bad by the way, but something big happens. And again, it comes back to the, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's no, because mediocrity to us sucks and average sucks. I never want to be average. And if you put yourself in the place where the majority isn't, you're likely going to have either a good or bad again. And I, I, like I said, I'm not an extremist in life, but I am someone that likes to do things that is different. 
and it's something that is true authentically to myself. I'm not into the herd mentality. I don't believe in it. I don't believe it's the way to go. I do believe in going to do things that can put you to greatness. And a lot of the time that makes you feel uncomfortable and it puts a fire under your ass. And when you have that fire under your ass, you go out and do crazy things. And crazy is not a bad word. It's really not. No, no, it, it really isn't. And, and that's how shit happens, right? I mean, when you go out there and you're all in, it's the passion behind it. When you say, fuck yeah, when you say, you know, we're, we're going in all the way, it just shows the customer, it shows your team that you're serious. You know what I mean? And that's, that's what I love about you. And I think that passion of yours is going to be felt by all the listeners throughout. I mean, if you haven't felt it already, it's just going to get stronger and stronger as we're continuing on with this, with this interview. So as startup brands who are growing quickly and telling their story on social media, especially LinkedIn, you guys are running with the big dogs like Alex Bayer from Genius Juice, Mark Samuel from I Want Organics, uh, Erica Rankin from Brodo. She's making you know, her name, just to name a few. Now, they're sharing their lives and their stories exceptionally well, like Midday Squares. So congratulations all around. How, how does that feel to, to be out there on, on social media? Yeah, so I think it's, it, it goes back to storytelling is one of the most powerful tools in the world. And authenticity is the next tool that you have to use. And here's what we did since August 2018. And we're, I think, I believe we're one of the originals. Um, and, and the path that's been created on this storytelling for the CPG world has been created by us, not on LinkedIn necessarily, but what we believed in was documenting the entire process and using a glass door to show everything. And except for trade secrets, everything was on the table, therapy sessions, firings, emotion, breakdowns, mental health issues, Everything that happened on this journey, Yuval, whether that is, like I said, great or really shitty, we wanted to show that because our consumers should know exactly what's happening at every single point in the time. And sometimes there's a lot of uncomfortable content that gets put up there. For example, when we showed my sister and Nick going through a very hard time in their marriage, it was, it was uncomfortable, cringeworthy, and a little bit strange to watch. Because you really felt the emotions and the truth of what was going on and the sadness that this business could have potentially had an effect on their actual marriage, um, which is not, was not the goal in starting this business. Ensuring that relatability and authenticity created a tighter bond with the consumer. And when I mean a tight bond, you create a real community and a real family around the business. And like I said, they don't see the product package anymore. They no longer see it as that healthy chocolate bar. They see it as Jake, Nick, Les, and the entire Midday Squares crew, and they know us. I'll never forget the story where I was in New York about four months ago, and I was with a banker. He's one of our investors, and he said to me, he's like, let's go to a party on a rooftop. And I was like, okay, well, who's going to be there? I, I, love I love meeting people. He's like, it's all investment bankers. It's all people in the investment bank. I'm like, well, I'm going to be an outlier, which I don't mind, but you know, whatever. He's like, just come. I show up. The first thing the group says to me, I don't know anyone. The first thing they say to me is like, oh my God, how's Fred doing? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like to them, what, what is he saying? What are these guys saying? Who's Fred? They're like, no, Fred, is he, is he okay? So then it clicked in my mind. Holy shit, we showed his breakdown last week. They know my plant, Matt, our plant manager, because of the storytelling and the relatability. And these people are now connected deeply and invested into the characters of who's building this business. And Yuval, it, something that's important is that it's not $65,000 of cost to make this happen. It's, it's half a million dollars to a million dollars just to get media properly done within a company. When we first started, we didn't have that. We, video, we did all the videoing ourselves and the editing ourselves. But as time went on, we invested in a proper media team with producers, 
creative directors, videographers, editors, photographers, because we really want to document and we really are, are bullish on documenting the entire journey and being so transparent to the point where there's no pressure. There's actually zero pressure because the consumer knows everything. That's why success came quickly for you guys. So 500,000 bars in the first 11 months. What was that like? How much of that was pure hustle and how much was social media? It was a grind, Yuval. I remember we were making the bars. Something I didn't mention on the podcast is we were making the bars by hand in the condo, in their condo at the beginning. Then we moved into a small kitchen. We tried to go to a co-packer, went to 26 actually to make this product scalable. And not one of them was able to do it. They all said that either, you know, you're gonna have to change the product to what, 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 it should, what, what we can make on our machines. Or you'll buy us about three to $4 million of the custom machinery and we'll, we'll have the machines and we'll make it for you. So we said, fuck no, we'll go build it ourselves, even though it was all on hypotheticals. It was all hypothetical machinery, right? And we had to go build that factory. And when we did that, that was something crazy. So the hustle of scaling it was wild. And we used to hand deliver our products. But our year one goal was $250,000 run rate. That was our year one goal. And I thought my partners were crazy. I'm like, you know how much chocolate that is to sell of, of three, $3.99 chocolate bars? They're like, trust us. This is what the model says. We ended up blowing past that 250,000 mark in, in the first two and a half months. And then I realized, I'm like, oh my God, we actually are on a real ride here. And we actually have a chance at, at potentially building something very special. And that's when we started really like focusing and saying, okay, how do we scale this business? How do we really build it to be, you know, a modern day chocolate conglomerate? And, 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 you know, how are we going to get there? And do we believe in manufacturing? It's a very capital intensive business, or do we change the product? But then it comes back to, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's no. And what's fuck yeah is to go build out that factory and go build that product that's delicious and tastes good. And it is what we, we want it to be. Right? It, it's, it's a huge investment and a huge risk not to go to a co-packer because ultimately you're taking on the entirety of the cost of manufacturing. And that's, uh, that's some scary shit. So, you know, it's funny because validation is so important when you get into certain retailers. And I remember with my first company, Luvala, the skincare line, when we got into Whole Foods, that was an incredible moment. That, that first PO, the first AMCAP, how was it for you guys? And was that your first validation when you got into Whole Foods? Whole Foods was one. Um, I think the biggest moment for us was the watching the plant actually, the machines actually come to life and work. I think that's, you know, in my opinion, I don't understand how a lot of food companies outsource their core competency because your core competency isn't your marketing. Marketing is one way to sell your product. Your team is obviously a core competency, but your manufacturing and capabilities of manufacturing have to be your core capacity, core competency, because it's what makes your product. So if you don't control that, there's a risk. If I was a, if I was about to pitch Google on this software and all, and all I was doing was outsourcing every engineer and, I, and there was no engineers in the company, it wouldn't make sense. So I think that there's this misconception in food that has obviously helped companies scale faster, but then they create a lot of problems. There's a lot of reliability and dependency on other people. While we hit our gross margins at a very, soon we'll be able to hit our gross margins that are really high. Um, because we, we, we ate dog shit for the last three years and spent a shit ton of dollars building this plant out, got our government behind it, got investors to have to believe in manufacturing, which was not a real, which was not like a typical thing in food for some reason, other than the big companies. And for us, it's just been, it's been a crazy journey. So I think watching the manufacturing plant actually pump out these bars that were made by hand from 80 bars a day to now being able to do 90,000 bars a day is kind of cool. It is. Do you, do you remember any significant challenges with all this expansion? Like something that just totally comes up 
Yeah. So some of the machines just didn't work. Some of the stuff just didn't, um, it took months to get it going. COVID, when we got the machines in, it was the beginning of COVID and the engineers were, our machines come from Europe and the engineers couldn't come in because of the border, Canadian border was shut. That was a disaster. You have machines just sitting in boxes that it's a waste. It was nine months of wasted dollars till we finally got them. Then getting them to start the machines was so nerve wracking because it was like, it was all built on an, a hypothetical of a 90% success rate. So think about it, you were to, we, we put in $3.2 million into the machinery and there was a 90% chance that it was going to work, but 10% chance that it doesn't. And that was just like, it was like almost betting the entire farm on the whole thing. And it ended up working and we've learned how to do so many cool things through this manufacturing, like learned how to do crazy stuff with product development, right? And R&D. And I think that that gives us an advantage. Um, you know, over time against all other companies that are going this Copac route, they don't learn as much on how to do cool things with the products and make something that's innovative. Um, I'm not saying we reinvented the wheel, Yuval, for chocolate. We didn't. We just, we made a, we redefined the way people eat chocolate with a snack that's different, but it's not in a, it's in the most saturated market. Chocolate is so saturated, but we're, we didn't care to go into a niche set, which you know a lot of companies think is the right way to go. Those niche sets are too small. We decided to go into chocolate because it's so massive and chocolate's, chocolate's changing, confection's changing to be more mixed together with wellness. I wouldn't say it has to go all the way to wellness, but confection mixed with wellness is, I think, the future of, uh, of this snacking space for CPG. No, I, I totally agree. I'm a big proponent and a fan of get into business as an entrepreneur, learn every aspect of the business, because eventually, whether you continue manufacturing or you go a cold packer route in the future, you need to know to call bullshit on people and on, on uh, vendors. Speaking of millions of dollars, you raised 3.4 million in your first round. Congratulations. So what was that like? Was it the right move back then? Do you have any regrets? No, so we love our partners. Our first round was led by Boulder Food Group. Um, great people. Um, they've been a big help. They took a bet on us. Again, not even seeing our factory. They just saw it on a paper and they took a bet on that, which is really bold of them, I believe. Um, then we did a second round with them as well and a couple other strategics in there that are amazing people. And now we're doing a third one. And this financing that we're doing our third one, it's going to hiring out the, I like to call it the million dollar management team which is the executive team that have people that have been through the 10 to $150 million scale um, from VP level. So we're bringing on a bunch of different talent that fits into the culture that we have at Midday Squares because that's what we're protecting at most. That's where these dollars are next going. The other dollars were, were to build the factory. Well, that was government subsidized to a certain extent. It was a government loan. And um, yeah, no, I don't, we don't regret raising money. We wouldn't have existed today. You know, like I said, media is very expensive. Um, building a brand is probably the most expensive thing in the world. Huge. Um, and building community is expensive. So for us, you know, we're 65 people in the company and it's expensive and it's, the, and you know, 30, 32 are in manufacturing. So the rest is in ops and, you know, sales, marketing, um, stuff like that. Media is its own team. So I believe that Going through that process of raising money, it's just a financing event. And if people think it's a lot more than that, it's not. Um, yes, it's due diligence and all that jazz. It's stressful. But at the end of the day, it's literally just capital to use to grow your business. A lot of the time, people get sucked into this idea that you have to do it. You, you have to do it. No, you could do many different types of capital raises. You could do a loan. You could do debt. You could do, you could do equity. You could do VC. You could do, you could do um, even you know, other stuff, IPO if you want 
public side. There's so much to do, but people, oh, they, they, they look at it as it's a, as if it's a marketing gig and it shouldn't be looked at as that because that's where you go run into problems um, down the line with partners, with things, expectations, boards. And I think they, people don't realize and a lot of new age founders see these, 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 these media articles that come up and like, oh my God, raised $5 million at this evaluation, they're going to go out and win. And next thing you know, the company has no strategic model to get there and they didn't actually necessarily need the money or they needed it and they didn't get enough. And it was just to get it done, the deal done. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions in this CPG space. Um, but I've been fortunate to have a partner that's been through the financing rounds in, in his previous company. So um, that's been a big help for us. Well, well, well said. I mean, I think for those listening who've never started a manufacturing or a CPG brand, consumer packaged goods brand, what Jake is speaking about in terms of the cost, yes, there's marketing costs outside of participation with retail. Your participation with retail is called trade spend. And that's basically 15, 20, 25% or more of your top line to be able to just play the game with the big boys, right? That's that. And then you have employees you really need to be efficient. You really need to know what you're doing. Otherwise, you're screwed. And that's why so many CPG brands go out of business. And the ones that really succeed and shoot up just like you guys, you have a plan and, and you're executing on it. So, you know, you're, you're Jake, the chief rover officer, frontline dancer, the delivery boy. The only thing that you're not is Jake from State Farm. You know, that's a reference <laughs> to a commercial uh, in the US. Jake, what were your specific mistakes so far that you can share with us? And what did you learn from them? So the first mistake I made um, was ego. So ego got in my way when I first started being a co-founder. I thought I had to um, manage people. I thought that, you know, I had to take a department, be the manager. And because I own the co- portion of the company, I must be the boss, boss, boss. And, and that was in my mind, stuck in my mind. So for the first six to eight months of the business, I was in charge of the marketing department and I was trying to be this manager. And I was so fucking bad, Yuval, that people wanted to quit. It wasn't that I was rude. I was just unorganized. It wasn't my skill set. I was playing to my weakness, actually. I wasn't playing my strength. My strength is to be out there, to build noise, to be at that time a rovering figure, which would go around and help every department get magic stuff brought into them, right? And I, I stayed in the pocket so long, Yuval, burning inside about managing. And when I finally realized um, I got to let this go and just be honest to my partners and say, I can't be a manager and I have to be managed. Um, that was the most liberating thing I've ever done. And biggest lesson I probably learned in business is, you know, ego for one reason should never get in the way. You got to drop it. Business is not about having an ego. Even if you're the most successful, or you're not the most successful. It doesn't make a difference. You drop that, you lead with empathy and you'll get somewhere. That's number one. Number two is there's no one playbook. <laughs> to life, not one size fits all. And I think that that's something that you hear so much noise, Yuval, as you're a growing business or even just starting out that people want to give you advice on this. They want to give you advice on that. If you listen to everything, you will go into analysis paralysis. And I think that that's a big problem in our space is you need to learn how to block out that noise and put, like they say, those blinders on your eyes so you could just stay focused. When you stay focused, you win. You go out there and win. I'm not saying don't hear some things, but make sure that you're blocking out most of it because it's a very dangerous game to take advice from everybody and you'll end up nowhere and you'll run out of capital. So I think those two things were the most, um, the, the biggest lessons or biggest mistakes that I had originally and that I've learned from. My spiritual teacher, Atma, Atmananda Das, was my, uh, really my second interview. And he stated that the cure 
for the ego is humility. And the fact that you were humble enough to go to your partners and say, guys, I can't manage, that's huge because so many entrepreneurs are going to want to prove themselves and do whatever it takes and ultimately to the detriment of the business, right? So that, that leads me into kind of the cultural aspect of things because, you know, I'm huge. We're huge on culture at Promomash. And I recorded an episode with my co-founder, Chris, specifically addressing this subject. What does culture mean to you? It's family. Um, to me, it's, it's family. And, you know, company culture, let's talk company culture, not personal culture for now. I think you need to have a culture code where you, you create an environment that you want to create and you expect that that's going to be like that. For us, it was a, an environment where people become unapologetically themselves every single day. And they come here to this place to actually feel comfortable being themselves. And why? Because that's when greatness happens, when you are yourself, when you're authentically yourself, that's the only time you could be your best version. So for us, we, make, we, we work so hard as leaders to make it an environment like that where it's open-minded, it's open conversation, transparency is the leader of it. So being honest and transparent is where we'll get things. For example, when we let go of someone, a lot of the time, or if they wanna leave, we actually help them find another job before they leave. It's for us, we want to have alumni, kind of like how PayPal Mafia had their alumni to go out there and win. That's something special here. Number two is you got to know that if you're coming to Midday Squares, you sign a contract when you start, which is not for everyone to come in and you're going to be filmed 24 seven, meaning that at the office and on travel trips, you're, there's a camera following you at all costs, whatever you're talking about, you're saying, and it, it can be used not against you and not for against, but for the story of the journey of midday squares. And that again, creates another culture where I think that it's not for everyone. And we make it so clear because Yuval, when you have someone that doesn't fit the culture in your business, it's almost like cancer because it could spread very quickly and it could create a negative energy that is very dangerous for either a startup, midsize or a large company. For us, we look very closely at that and that's a way of protecting the family and the culture. And I think that if you don't have a culture at your company in today's world, I think you're missing out on a lot of potential success and a lot of potential happiness for your teammates and your colleagues. Yeah, I mean, Jake, it, it's not almost like cancer. It is cancer. That's why culture is number one. It literally is number one. If you can't have a team that follows the mission and vision and actions of the leaders, and the leaders actually have to have they have to understand that their actions are the creation of the culture. It's not what they say, it's what they do that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to culture. So that's, that's really awesome. So tell us about Crew Love and your retailer relationships, because that's I've been following that and it's, I think it's amazing. So tell us about those two. So our thesis since day one, Yuval, was to humanize the brand at all aspects. So whether that's producing the product, um, whether that's at retail or whether that's the direct consumer, we always wanted them to feel like they're buying, like I said, from Leslie, Nick, Jake and the Midday Squares team. And that created this community called Crew Love, which is, again, people that are part of this family and on this journey with us. They know everything that's going on. For example, if I'm having a bad day, they know how I feel. And a lot of the time they show support, which is the coolest thing in the world. When I had my breakdown, I think it was June 2020, um, just a lot going on, lost my why kind of. The amount of messages that inflowed from, from when we shared that experience, we're talking in the hundreds, if not thousands. 
um, of support. And I almost couldn't answer all of them because I was like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. That's what real community is, Yuval. That's what crew love is. And that crew love doesn't just support you when you're down. They support you when you're up as well. And here's where the best example is. Whole Foods Canada, when we got into Whole Foods Canada, it was from Crew Love. They went out there and they reached out. They worked hard to get it. That was a big thing. Number two, not only do they get us retailers, they've gotten us investors. They've gotten us the solutions to a machine problem we had. They once shipped us during a crisis. A Crew Love, a customer of ours, got on, reached out to us and said, I can have, a, because we love you so much, our family, they said, we could have a product sent to you, a machine sent to you in less than 24 hours. It was nine hours away in less than 24 hours, no charge, use the machine and just give it back. That's what, that's what real community is. It's a two-way road and it's not just a transaction. It's an actual relationship. And I think that's, what's most important in, in the future of any business. It, it so is. And the thing is, it's, you need that support. That's why we have the seven hatters. That's why we have promo mashers. I mean, it brings that community, those that you're trying to serve together so they can help each other and help you. So, you know, I'm older than you. Uh, I'm not going to disclose my age. Actually, everybody knows, but I'm way older than you. I'm a little jealous. My first Black Swan event was in 2008 when I had my company, and that was the financial crisis. Yours was COVID. How was that? Were you prepared? And what did you learn to survive? Okay. So March, 2020, before that, we were on fire. The company was literally growing. We, we just entered into Western Canada from Eastern Canada. We, we, were, we, were, we, were, we were so bold. We were so jacked up. The team, we had a, a new team, Midday Squares, um, I think it was 2.0 or whatever you want to call it. Everyone was fired up, excited. March 2020 came, pandemic came, retail sales, so our retail sales dropped 70% in one month, 70%, fell off the cliff. We have a manufacturing plant. This isn't a co-packing thing, right? So we have teammates. We were 26 of us total in the company at the time, total. And me, Leslie, and Nick sat down and we're like, holy shit, this is actually real. This is a change of the world right now. The world is going through a complete change of just mentality. They're scared. There's fear. There's everything. And we sat there and we kind of sulked for literally an hour um, and realized this is, op- th- this is a potential chance for midday squares to not make it through and not, pres- you know, pres- uh, pre- what is it? Persevere through this crisis. And we had $10,000 in the bank account, 10, which was a mistake. We didn't, we, d- we made a mistake on cash flow statement. Here's the problem. We had someone overlook something that thought it was 12 months more of cash left, but yet it was actually, I think, two months, which is a big problem, right? And we had this crisis hit and we're like, oh my God, like this, this could be it. We went home that day. We came back, we recuperated. We came back the next day with a lot of firepower and we said, okay, here's the strategy. We are going to play offense when everyone's playing defense. We shifted all of our budgets from retail to, to D2C and we went from, I think it was 20% D2C business to 45 now. So think about that. That's a wow. huge jump. That is. And it grew up. And what ended up happening was we ended up launching a flavor during COVID. We hired 16 people during that time. We had no money. We ended up supplying all the hospitals in Canada with bars just to keep our team working. We just needed to keep them working so we didn't have to lay anyone off. We didn't want to lay anyone off, right? And we did that. And that, that was a big win for us because not only were we doing good, but you know everyone was eating our bars and keeping the front line fueled, but our team was still working. And we ended up growing, Yuval, 180% that year. We were now a team of 65, you know, a year and a half later or whatever, a year, nine months later. 
if we didn't do that bold move of going on the offense and spend money, I'm talking about spend, like spending on media, spending on hiring, all that stuff, we wouldn't have made it because our category got slashed by 30, 40%. We ended up going up like crazy. And now um, we're 45% D2C, 55% wholesale. We actually want to bring it back to like a 65, 35 business, 65% wholesale, 35% D2C. But, you know, we're grateful for what happened in the sense of the learning experience that we had to become more bold as, as entrepreneurs and leaders during a time of crisis. One of, one of the biggest segments of our business at ProMesh is your category. And they got hammered, hammered during the first six months or eight months of COVID. I, I, some didn't make it. I'm so glad you did. So before we get to family, the last question about business is, who do you guys need to become, you think? I know it's kind of predicting the future a little bit, but who do you, who do you uh, guys need to become to get to the next level of growth? Our goal is to be a new age Hershey, a modern day Hershey's been the better for you chocolate space and just creating a different type of community around a brand. Um, and I think that we could do that with innovation, with manufacturing capabilities and um, that humanization of the customer experience and, and the community. And that's our goal is give us five to eight years to build a modern day Hershey's. Um, we're already we're gunning for it and we're, we have conviction on it. So we're going for it. One of the really exciting things that I think you have to offer the seven headers is some perspective on a fairly common situation. I know I dealt with it, but one that hardly anyone talks about working with your family. So your sister, Leslie, her husband, Nick started the company, as you mentioned, then you joined as a third co-founder. Now you've had some history with her. What's that history and how have you been able to overcome it? So, yeah, so family business, if you actually look at the statistics in, in, in entrepreneurs and, and, and how, why businesses fail, I think a lot of the time it's due to founder conflicts and a lot of the time it's family business, actually. So for us, my sister and I go back a very long time to fighting as kids. We always loved each other very deeply um, as, as family, but we, we had a lot of disagreements. I was immature growing up a little bit with her and we only became close when I was like 19. Um, before that, we had some problems together and um, we're very open about it, but we had like, we would, we'd always butt heads like this, really hard to the point where it would go a little crazy. But in the end, she would always come forward and, and solve these problems with me and be the mature one and, and, and love. And you know, that, that led us to the big picture, right? And when we went into business, I was a bit nervous, but day one, August, 2018, when I said to them, we're going to film everything, and that was uncomfortable for Nick and Les, they asked me that we are going to see a business therapist once a week, consistently, forever. Um, that's going to be on retainer of the company. And the goal is, is to learn communication and understand each other and create a safe zone where we could have very difficult and hard conversations. And if I tell you how far we've come from that first session, we've become completely different people. Um, and you know, we've learned each other. We've learned how to keep this relationship as family throughout this entire journey and not forget that. And what's crazy is, is we, we've all agreed that if we come out of this journey, I don't care if it's a billion dollar business, if it's not, and we're not family, we've lost completely. We've completely lost um, the journey. So we hired a business therapist. His name's Dr. James Gavin. He studies behavioral therapy. Um, he really understands partnerships and communication. And it's the best investment that we've made to date. Um, some of our team members use, use him now. Um, and we hope to one day have him, him or someone 
internally be there all the time to support our team and our journey because communication is hard, partnerships are hard, and relationships are hard. If you have tension and you let tension build up, explosions happen and explosions can de- can be so detrimental to the brand, to the company that it could actually shut it down. It could it could create an animosity and a hate that 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 you never thought you had in you. And I think that this allows us this therapy allows us to understand each other at a very deep level and keep us focused on what the massive picture is and what we're actually all here for. And that there's no one putting a gun to our head to say that you have to be on this journey. Uh, you know, we show up here every day because it's a choice. You know, it makes us happy. Uh, we we want to be with each other. This tripod only works when we're together. This sorry, this business only works when we're together because we make magical things together. And I think that understanding that has allowed us to really understand this new age type of partnership. And we advocate so strongly for every entrepreneur to just give it a shot because it's expensive, but it's almost priceless because of what the asset that comes from it happens, you know? Sorry, what comes from it is, it's, it's, it's crazy. I've never heard of a company until yours having a therapist on retainer, not only for the founders, but for the team. So that's, that's incredible. What and when was your biggest fight and meltdown? So we've had a couple. Um, there was moment I can't remember specifics, but what I could remember is that there was one time where, honestly, it was called an emergency session because um, Leslie and I were really going at it. Uh, we disagreed. It was just immaturity. It was ego. It was all these things. And they basically called, they texted me saying, show up if you want to, we have the session. And they really didn't believe I showed up. But I, what I ended up doing was I booked a session the first hour before their session with Dr. Gavin to understand and collect my thoughts because I was so, we, I, we were both really hurt. Um, and what ended up happening was I was there when they came, they saw me sitting in the chair and that was a statement. It was a very powerful moment to know that we're committed to this. We're committed to working through this and getting this to make sure that it happens, at least giving it its real shot of dying on the hill together. And at that moment, I don't think we've had a blow up since. Um, you know, the here and there, there's a little bit of like chuckles sometimes, but we know each other. We know the, the language to talk to each other. We know how to communicate. And when there is an emergency, we do call, he's our savior, I would say, almost in quotations. Um, he's the savior of the brand. We just understand each other so deeply now. And, it, you know, being empathetic and understanding that not everyone sees the same thing is super, and super important because someone might see, you know, this as X, Y, Z, and someone else might see it as A, B, C. And if you don't come together to understand where, why, what, how, you'll never, you'll never move forward. Do you think you guys are closer today? Would that be a true statement? 100, 150%, all three of us. So what has entrepreneurship uh, done and what toll has it taken on your lives? It's definitely taken a toll. Um, Yuval, it's, it's, the, it's the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And I studied to be an actuary, that was hard. Um, but this is definitely the most exhausting, most fun, but definitely it's taken a couple years off my life. My energy levels have been shot a little bit. Um, you know, I sacrificed a lot of my personal life. I know people say it all the time. They sacrifice their personal life, but I actually, you know, have a hard time balancing it, um, in the sense of keeping up with some of my friends family, you know, my person, my girlfriend, for example, um, it's tough, you know, entrepreneurship, it, it keeps your mind always on 24 seven, in my opinion. And that's almost dangerous. Um, because 
you sometimes got to step back and it's really hard to step back when you're in that zone and you're, you're, you're on that roller coaster. It's hard to say to say to the person running the roller coaster, stop and let me out because you, you know, you just can't. Right. And, um, I hope there's a moment where I feel, or we feel like actually only speak for myself where I'm not so exhausted and I'm really having fun because I am having fun, but I am tired. I wish I didn't have to have the tiredness. I wish I could just have fun and be energized because I'd be able to give a lot more to others that I want to give to, which I'm not currently able to. Man, that's so, such true statements. The listeners who are entrepreneurs who are on the roller coaster are cringing as you say those words. So is the pursuit of happiness worth it? 100 fucking percent. And I'll tell you why. What we get to do, who the people we get to meet, the stuff we get to do is so exhilarating and so cool that I'm willing to sacrifice it um, myself. Um, you know, I'm willing to stay in the pocket to see to see how much crazier it can get um, because I'm already it's already crazy enough. I'm ima- I'm imagining what it could get to because the sky is the limit. Uh, you Val, when you could focus and put your attention to something and have the right team in place, you could do really cool, amazing things that you know, allow you to experience really cool things. hundred percent. Finishing up the relationship. You know, I've been building businesses with my wife now for, man, 17, 16 years or so now. So it's, it's been a challenge and it takes a lot. How do you think the business affected your sister's relationship with Nick? Oh, for their, their relationship, they needed, they needed to work on it so hard because they go home together and they, how could they not talk about it? If there's an issue in the manufacturing plant, like they try not to, but how could they not? It definitely took a toll on their marriage. Um, but they worked, they're working so hard, Yuval, on um, communication and stuff like that to, to, to really get through this. And they've, they've done a great job. I, I got to tell you, I saw a whole change from year one to now um, and how they work together when they argue, how they come together to make magic happen. It's, it's truly an art. It's an art. And, you know, like I said, the three of us know that this journey is only worth it if we remain family after the journey. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, if you can make it through a venture such as a company and an entrepreneurial ride with a, with a partner, you can make it forever. I mean, that's, that's going to test you. So, so, so far we've explored the story that everyone uh, and anyone who has been watching your series would know. Uh, the show looks pretty raw and transparent for sure. Is there anything you don't show? The trade secrets and how we make the product is the only thing we don't show. Everything else is on the table. And I mean everything. Like, I've had the cameras come to my house when I'm fighting with my girlfriend and film it. And it's really uncomfortable. It's cringe. It's almost cringe. Um, But why it's important is not to show and get people to feel empathetic or, or, you know, for me or my girlfriend. It's... It's because that's affecting my day-to-day in the business. Um, it is. It's hard to compartmentalize it. People think, oh, yeah, you should just compartmentalize. No, it doesn't work like that always. You know, everyone's different, right? And when that happens, it creates maybe an even more uncomfortable thing for my girlfriend. She's a very quiet, private person. So she's committed to this roller coaster and understands that. Um, and we've had that discussion many times, but it's not easy. So there's nothing off the table. And I think that's what's unique and different about midday squares and that none of these big corporations can ever get to because they're not willing to go that deep or that, that, that real and raw to show because they scared, they have fear that there'll be judgment. We don't care about the judgment. We don't care that we say the word fuck. And you're right. It comes from passion, not 
cursing for a negative connotation. It has nothing to do with that. It's the passion that comes through. You know, we are on this journey to be unapologetically ourselves and show that you can win being you. You don't have to do what everyone else does. You don't have to do what society tells you. And that's our real mandate is to show that winning is possible by just being yourself and, and, and staying true to it. So true. So true. So let's, let's go back a little bit to you. You're the midday square mascot, and we know how you fell into that role initially. Dancing is your trademark. You get people excited and moving and vibing. How did the dancing start? Were you always this much of an extrovert or did you kind of learn along the way? No, I was always an extrovert. Uh, whether I was promoting college parties or you know throwing my parties for my fraternity, I was always the person that was get, bringing people together and getting them excited. And my, my thesis in life is to make, someone, make people feel something, um, make them really feel it. And dancing has been a big part of that, of laughter and uh, good vibes. And you know, when you surround yourself with positivity um, or you breed positivity and energy, it breeds to other people and that contagion just keeps going. And I always said, okay, how could I do that with now a, a product, like an actual physical product? And I said, yeah, just tie my good vibes, my energy, my authentic energy to the brand. People will feel it through the brand. They'll feel it everywhere. And I do that at corporations. I go into Fortune 500 bands and I go in their offices and I make them dance for a midday break. And it reminds them of like, oh my God, good times. And I get them dancing and they're laughing. And then I do it at my office to fire up my own team and also at conferences. And I think that that's something special about me because it's so authentic to what I love to do that when I'm doing it, I'm so, I'm so fucking passionate about it that people feel it, even if they don't like to dance or they don't like the song I put on, they still want to be part of it because they're like, this guy really does care. He's caring so much and putting so much energy into this thing. And I think that that's, it's been in me since day one of my life. It's always been there, that fire. Dude, your, your dances are epic. I'll never forget the one. I don't know if he was, he's the buyer or the, what was his name? Manager, Stuart, Stuart. Manager, Stuart. You're grinding him. He's doing break dancing moves. I mean, for those who have, have not watched, look Jake up and watch some of the videos. They're incredible. But, you know, what I noticed is that every dance is to watch me whip, watch me nay nay, right? So what's the significance of that song to you and why is it on every... Yeah, so that song, there's a couple other ones, but that song specifically is because there's already a dance created to it. So it's easy for people to catch on to the moves and like laugh. And like, it's just so funny because... I'm doing it in such a different format than the song was created that it's like actually kind of funny. Um, so when you get people in, you know, in the corporate world to do the nay nay and watch me whip at their offices, it's the funniest thing in the world. And everyone, you can't not laugh. You could be so sad, but you will still laugh because it's so weird. It's just so strange. And um, yeah, I take a lot of bar mitzvah music songs too that make you dance like Don't Want It, Hey Baby, like all those songs, because again, it brings back good vibes for people. And you have to laugh a little bit because you mentioned before that you were on the edge of burning out, uh, that you were in a bad place before you, uh, you joined the team and the therapy is helping you throughout. What was that bad, that bad place before you joined? You know, why, why do you think you're, you're burning out? Is it just because of the energy that you're putting in? Is it the mental? Is it the physical? It's just everything. It's the mental and the physical, um, you know, it's a mix of traveling a lot, you know, consistently your mind never shutting off, um, not doing things to meditate. In my opinion, I don't meditate. So I need to figure out other things to do that would calm me down. 
So I think that that just never, you're, it's like running on a treadmill 24 seven, you're gonna get tired, right? And eventually, you know, you gotta be very careful because burnout is real and can have permanent effects. Um, and it can be very hard to jump out of that burnout. Um, so for me, I'm really focused on now figuring out what I love. So I love to read, for example, I work out, like there's some stuff, I'm playing hockey tonight. That's something like, there's things that I'm doing to get my mind off and allow it to actually turn off a little bit and then recharge. It's like a Tesla. You got to charge the Tesla at night, right? Sleep isn't my best, but like I said, burnout's real and entrepreneurs got to be very, entrepreneurs or anyone, not even entrepreneurs, everyone in the world needs to be very aware of when that's coming and to watch out for it and have a mitigation because it can create permanent damage. It's not like, you know, you burn out and you mentally might not be able to snap back into it. Like I swear it's when I burnt out, it, it was a month of recovery. And just in terms of getting my rhythm back, it was tough, but it was, a, it was months of building. It wasn't just, okay, a month. It was months of pain before that. Yeah, I mean, burnout is not the only thing. I, I recently had Scott Ballard on the show, uh, and he spoke of a friend of his, a CEO of a million employee company, not a million dollar company, a million employee company, one of the biggest CEOs in the world. And that CEO from his jet plane, when he called him up, he said, Scott, I'm lonely. No one understands me. And that everyone wants something from me. As a first timer, do you feel lonely? Do you feel like somebody wants something from you all the time that no one understands you? Yeah. So I don't, I feel like more, I really feel more lonely. I, I, I feel like people, you know, it's not that they want something from me. I, I don't have that feeling. Um, I, you know, I really don't feel that, but I do feel, you know, lonely and misunderstood. Um, and my passion's misunderstood. And, you know, people, People at the beginning made fun of what I was doing, of what we were doing here. Um, now they don't look at it like that, but it's just like, it's always like, you know, this unraveled path that you're creating is misunderstood because no one understands it, whether it's an investor, a buyer, um, a team member, um, you know, you look insane or crazy for things that you do. And to me, they're not crazy or insane. So I'm not understanding that. So that kind of creates this space where you're not isolated, but you're very lonely. And I see a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people every day, Yuval, many. And I love great conversations and I love the people, but you're right. I do feel that, that sense of loneliness and I can't explain it by words. Words, I can't, I just can't even explain it to you right now, but it's, that, it's almost, it's not emptiness, but it's, it's a weird feeling that, you know, sometimes it, it, it actually makes me go like, question why I'm doing all this stuff. Like, is, is it worth it, you know? And um, I got to learn a way to deal with that. You just said something really interesting. And isn't it amazing that you can be surrounded with people and still feel lonely? I, I just, that's one of those things in life that I can never really explain. So you said, you know, wondered if it's worth it. The only reason that you're going to be able to get through this is because of your why. You know, Steve Jobs was very uh, a prominent proponent of love what you do, find your why. What's your why? My why is to, is to go out there and make people feel something. Like I said before, it's for me, that drives energy. It drives purpose for me. Um, and purpose is the reason why I burnt out in June, 2020. I, I didn't, I thought I lost it. I thought I lost my purpose. And, you know, for me, I've always been that community person that, that was able to make people get excited about something. And if I lose that, I feel like I have no reason to be doing anything actually. And I think that's my why. And I gun for it every day. Every day I try to think about it and I try to, you know, move forward to it. And if I'm in a rut, I know that it's because I'm not following my why. Yeah. So important to have it. So in the final moments of our time together, 
I can speak with you for about two weeks nonstop. I love you, man. You're you're fucking awesome. So one, I love you too, brother. One final question. Very popular with our audience, and you're still probably a little too young to get. I, I would I should ask you this again in the next five years. But here's the question: Who did you need to stop being, and who did you need to become in order to materialize your current success today? I needed to lower my expectations for the people around me. And I don't mean the people I'm working for, working with, sorry. I mean, the people I, you know, the people that are my community of my personal life. And I'll tell you why. I was asking for such excellence and we breed a lot of excellence in our company. So I expect it and it's met most of the time, which fulfills that need. When it's not met in other categories of your life, it could drive you insane because you're like, okay, well, why isn't it being met there? How can that not reach there? What are we going to do to get there? And if someone just doesn't want to, that's totally fine. And I needed to understand that. I needed to be okay with it not being up to here, the bar being so high with people around me that are close to me that I love. I genuinely just, I genuinely love them. When I got rid of that a year and a half ago, that mentality, life started becoming easier for me. Um, And I don't mean easier in the sense of lazy. I mean, more enjoyment with the people around me and, and, and actually enjoying the present with them and not worrying about, well, how do we get them to there? How do we get to that? Like, it's not my worry that if someone wants to sit and, and play Xbox all day, that's totally cool. If that's what they want to do, why am I intervening to go make them do other things? Why am I putting all my energy into that? And when you realize that, you start to win because you stop bothering others and you stop feeling so down on yourself for not being able to make the change happen in that other person's life. I realized that it's their life, not my life. And I love them for who they are and not for what I want them to be or in quotations, what I thought I wanted them to be. And um, I always preach, be unapologetically yourself. So if that is them being unapologetically themselves, that's their best version, right? So it's like, how could I not believe in what I'm saying all the time? And when I let that go, Yuval, it was a game changer. That's beautiful. So- let the seven hatters know how they can connect with you. What's the best way of getting in touch and sharing the love that they're going to share after listening to this episode? So from a business standpoint, if you ever want to get our products, www.middaysquares.com or in any retailers in the fridge, um, look in the fridge. You can, see on, you can see on the website also the store locators. If you want to get in touch with me personally, um, Jake Carl's on LinkedIn or on Instagram, Facebook. I'm very active on all of them um, in terms of answering messages and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I'd love to connect with anyone. Um, like I said, um, I have no expectations. I just, I like to meet people. It gives me energy. It fuels me. It fuels my why. Um, but I hope I can make you feel something. That's, that's really the goal. So, um, don't be shy to reach out. Definitely reach out to Jake, ask him for a dance, get some midday squares. My favorite is peanut butter. It's ridiculous. It's insane. Jake, Again, love you, man. What fire. So many nuggets. I just love it. It's going to be one of my most popular episodes. I can guarantee. Thank you for coming on The Seven Hats. I love you, brother. Great conversation. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jake. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here's my takeaway. Jake wisely states that as an entrepreneur, Playing in the middle of the bell curve is a surefire way to set yourself up as mediocre. And when Jake, Nick, and Leslie, also known as the tripod, decided that they were going into battle 
and were willing to die on the hill, right there, they decided to play at the tail end of that bell curve. And boy, did it pay off. When the tripod decided to build the Midday Squares company culture around the term Darren Hardy and Derek Sivers made famously, quote, if it's not hell yeah, then it's no, end quote. Except Jake spices it up with, if it's not fuck yeah, then it's straight up just no. Entrepreneurs need to understand that their biggest challenge as a startup or early stage company is to stand out. And the only way to stand out is to move to the far end of the normal distribution curve. Too many entrepreneurs don't realize how many companies they're really competing with for the attention of their customers. And to win big and achieve the massive and swift success that Midday Squares achieved is at the spicy end of the bell curve. So let's join those iconic brands like Apple, Walt Disney, Starbucks, Walmart, Tesla, SpaceX, and so many others and follow Aerosmith's advice and live on the edge. I want to thank Jake once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.